Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to the Wisdom on Wheels podcast. I am Steve Johnson, and it is great to be with you, as it always is. And I always say that. Maybe one of these days I will change it, but I'm used to it now, so it's probably not likely. I am sitting here amongst my furry little companion, Galaxy, who is... uh, laying on my flash drive which is plugged into my computer surely nothing could go wrong with that galaxy don't do that go lay somewhere else thank you good kitty all right so wisdom on wheels podcast steve johnson if you have any thoughts questions comments objections uh constructive criticism destructive criticism will get you ignored constructive criticism will be listened to if I happen to think it's a good point and agree with it. Or if you have any ideas on how to improve the podcast, or if you have any ideas on topics I can discuss, or that you would like to hear. Or uh, even if you would like to do a mutual podcast where we, uh, we can find a way to come online and record at the same time, and we can, or I can record and we can... I can invite people on and we can just have a conversation back and forth about anything you want. However you want to do it. Any of those things, any of the above, or anything else that you uh, can come up with, you can email me at wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. Again, that is wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. All right. So today on the podcast... I'm going to be responding to uh, something that was recently said by a person who is admittedly one of my favorite preachers to listen to. He is not my favorite, but he is one of my favorites. Um, he's also, I wouldn't consider him my greatest influence, but he's somebody that I enjoy listening to. His name is Jesse Duplantis. Now, right away, I know right away a lot of you are like, it's a heretic. Oh, my gosh. You see what, how big his plane is and how big his estate is. And he's got a mansion and on and on and on. Yes, I know, I know, I know, I know. Everybody does. So many people don't like that. You either love Jesse or you don't like him. I get it. I understand. I happen to be a fan. But that doesn't mean I'm a fan of everything he says. And that doesn't mean I agree with everything he says. And he just happened to say something within the last week to 10 days that I really did not agree with. In fact, I disagree with it so much that I decided to do a podcast about it. Now, this is not going to be an entire episode of me bashing Jesse Duplantis. In fact, I don't intend to do that at all. All I'm going to do is play the comments that he made that inspired this episode and then respond to it, not by attacking him, not even really referencing him again, so much as teaching the truth about what is said on the subject. And uh, before I play that, I would also like to say a big hello to one of the life groups that I am in, who I am sure will be sharing this podcast with directly. I'm sorry that we did not get to meet this evening, but one of the, another reason I'm doing this message is because uh, you know, I love it when we do our weekly gatherings, and I enjoy seeing all of you and 
talking to this group. You know who you are and you've already received this. And I'm sorry we did not get to meet this evening. And I look forward to seeing you all again soon. And uh, I know this isn't the same as all of us meeting together and seeing each other's happy faces. But I hope you will enjoy this and find it useful nonetheless. And may it build you up in the faith of our Lord. Or, and may it uh, deepen your knowledge of the truth that is found in God's Word. Okay, so, Jesse Duplantis, he made a comment. Uh, this video uh, is about a minute and 32 seconds long, the clip is. And so I just wanted to take some time, and I wanted to play this, so you know that I'm not taking him out of context, and I'm not saying anything that I'm not I'm not leaving anything out I want you to hear this entire thing and then we're going to get on to the topic for discussion again this is not going to be about tearing down Jesse I still love Jesse and I'll probably still listen to him but this one I felt needed some correction this particular statement so with that in mind let me make sure I got my volume up all the way and here we go that the reason why Jesus hadn't come is because people are not giving the way God told them to give. You see what I'm saying? I mean, when you understand it, you can speed up the time. I was on television. He said, I heard you was a millionaire. I said, that's not right. That's not true. He said, yes, it is. I said, no, it's not. Malta. Now, add that to it, you'll be all right. <laughs> oh, he couldn't handle that. He liked to have had a fit. And I said, you mess with me, I'll buy this station and I'll fire you. Yeah. Oh, he didn't like that, did he? Didn't he? Now, you know, that was a little fleshy, but it felt good. <laughs> <laughs> Just did. You know what I mean? I said, so I realized that I will not move people emotionally to give. I'm going to have people move according to the word of God. What is God saying to you? And I really believe this. If people would call this number, and put this victory all over the world, every available voice, every available outlet. The Father, he would say, Jesus, go get him. Yeah. Because you see, he wants to see us as much as we want to see him. You see what I'm saying? And so what has hindered all these things is, uh, 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 is because people are not doing in the financial realm, because we live in an economic world, what God's called them to do. You know, he's called us to do that. So I don't have a problem with giving. I don't have a problem with receiving. It, it doesn't make any difference. I just made up my mind. I want Jesus to come. They said, do you own a jet? Yes. You can have it the day after the rapture. It's yours. Because Jesse, Jesse is going to heaven. All right. So, this message is going to be about signs of the end of the age. That's what this podcast episode is about. The sign of the end of the age that is given in Scripture. First of all, let me state right off the bat that nowhere in the Bible, when it talks about signs of the end of the age, does it say that Jesus is delaying his return until his followers give enough money to the kingdom of God or to his work. Nowhere, 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 nowhere in the Bible will you see any statement of anything close to that at all. Not one place anywhere. Not in the Old Testament and not in the New Testament. 
But what is talked about is apostasy toward the last uh, in the last days and toward the end of the church age. You will bear with me for one second, maybe longer. No, I don't need to do that. Okay, make sure that my do not disturb is on. All right, I want to turn on my light here, and I want to read for you. The definition of apostasy from one of the study Bibles that I have in the glossary of prophetic terms. Apostasy in the Greek, you could say departure, but apostasy is the term used for the condition of those who once professed the Christian faith but have since departed from its doctrine or practice. So you've seen over, if you've been paying attention, there have been some semi-famous, I would say, Christian singers, for example. People that were lead singers or, or players in Christian bands that have said statements such to the effect of, I'm no longer a Christian, I no longer believe, and I'm not going to... There's various reasons that they gave for that. And some people have written some very good responses to those people. So it's not my, again, not my intention here to try old cases, if you will, in making a point. My point here is to take what Jesse said, which, again, I love Jesse, but I think he, he's definitely way far off in this case uh, because what he said just cut and dry plane is not scriptural i'm sorry but it's not so what does the bible say about the signs of the end of the age there these are specifically mentioned in several places the first one that we're going to look at is first timothy chapter 4 verses 1 3. Again, that is 1 Timothy, which coincidentally comes right before 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And right now I'm reading from the Amplified Bible Classic Edition. If you're looking for the acronym of that, it will say AMPC. You can find it on the YouVersion Bible app, your Welcome Life Church. And you can also find it on Bible Gateway. And there's probably other websites you can find it on as well. But those are the main two Bible websites that I use uh, for just reading the Bible. For study helps, there's other places I go. But for just plain reading the scriptures, I go to YouVersion, the YouVersion Bible app and Bible Gateway. And that's where you can find the Amplified Bible Classic Edition there as well as many, many others. Uh, but the Amplified Bible Classic Edition, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Galaxy, get out of the trash. Hey, you good. Okay, it says here, um, But the Holy Spirit distinctly and expressly declares, so there's no messing around here, the Holy Spirit distinctly and expressly declares that in latter times, that's another term for the last days, before the rapture, before the 
the return of Christ. Actually, that phrase is used several times. Sometimes it means the last days before the rapture. Sometimes it means the last days before the glorious appearing of Jesus at the end of the tribulation. Sometimes it's referring to the entire period of the church age, um, which began in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost when Jesus ascended to heaven. Um, when Jesus ascended to heaven, the disciples went to the upper room and they stayed there and they prayed and they waited until the Holy Spirit came upon them several weeks after Jesus ascended to heaven. Then the day of Pentecost, that's what, that's what happened on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the people and then the Apostle Peter gave a sermon to the people that were listening and I call it the first evangelism crusade, uh, a la Billy Graham. And about 3,000 people were saved on that day. They repented and were, uh, and were baptized. So, 1 Timothy, uh, that, well, excuse me, that's when the church age began, is in Acts chapter 2. And the church age has continued for approximately the last 2,000 years up to the present day. And it will continue to go up until the rapture of the church. And when the rapture happens, the church age is over. Everybody who was saved from Acts 2 until the rapture is considered part of the church because they were saved during the church age. And anybody who gets saved after that during the tribulation are referred to as tribulation saints. But that is a whole other, again, that's, that's, a different, that's going deeper into this timeline of the end times than we're primarily focusing on here tonight. So, um, signs of the end of the age, the apostasy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 in the Amplified Bible Classic Edition. It says, But the Holy Spirit distinctly and expressly declares that in latter times some will turn away from the faith. Some will turn away from the faith. That means they were turned toward it. They professed belief. And then at some point they turned. Giving attention to deluding and seducing spirits and doctrines that demons teach. Now, deluding and seducing spirits have been in existence since the church began and before. Okay? They've, they've always been around. What we're talking about here with this and with all these other signs, a lot of these things, again, have existed throughout the entirety of the church age. But what we are talking about here is a increase and uh, a kick into overdrive, if you will, of all these things happening. When all these things begin to happen and they all begin to happen together and they increase in frequency and intensity. Jesus, in talking about the signs of the end in uh, Matthew 24, talked about birth pains. And we know about birth pains that they increase in frequency and intensity as the time draws near for the end. Okay? Well, the same with these signs. As the time draws near for the rapture, we'll see these things have, a lot of these things have always happened in pockets 
and at different times in different parts of the world. These are characteristics, however, generally of the world at large in the last days leading up to the rapture and the end of the church age. So we have the giving of the people falling away from the faith, turning away from the faith, and giving attention to deluding and seducing spirits and doctrines that demons teach. Through the hypocrisy and pretensions of liars whose consciences are seared or cauterized. Hypocrisy. What is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is simply somebody who claims to be something and then acts differently. They are claiming to be something they are not. In the Greek culture, in ancient Greek culture, this would have been a play actor. Would have been somebody on a stage who was one, you know, they're one person, but they're on a stage and they're acting as if they are someone else. This was a play actor. So a hypocrite is someone who play acts. They are one person, but they put on a mask and they pretend like they are someone else. Um, you know, actors in Hollywood, actors in movies. Uh, Kirk Cameron played the role of Buck Williams in Left Behind, my favorite movie, right? But Kirk Cameron is not a news reporter who gets left behind after the rapture and then goes through the tribulation. He's play-acting somebody that he's not. A play actor, a hypocrite in real life, is a person who said, who is one thing, but they play act, they act as if they're something different than they are. And it talks about the hypocrisy and pretensions of liars whose consciences are seared or cauterized, it says on the Amplified Classic Edition. And what that word cauterized, that's, uh, let's look that up in the dictionary real quick because I want to expand on this a little bit. I looked this up earlier and uh, um, this says here, listen to this description in an encyclopedia of cauterization. Remember, this is talking about the seared conscience of hypocritical liars who say one thing and then are something else. Uh, Cauterization is a medical practice or technique of burning a part of a body to remove or close off a part of it. So if we're talking about a cauterized or a seared conscience, we're talking about somebody who has removed or closed off, closed off a part of their conscience. They've deadened it. They've killed it. They've violated it so much that it's 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 cauterized it's it's it it no longer responds to stimuli to the stimuli of god's law which pricks the conscience and shows someone their need for the savior okay that's what happens to a cauterized conscience it destroys some tissue cauterization destroys some tissue in an attempt to mitigate bleeding and damage to remove an undesired growth or to minimize other potential medical harm such as infections when antibiotics are unavailable so 
when antibiotics are unavailable. What's the cure for the spiritual infection of sin? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the spiritual antibiotic. His blood, you could say, is the spiritual antibiotic that gets applied to the sin nature, to, the, to our sinfulness and our sins, and washes them away and makes us clean and whole and makes us well. It removes the sin sickness from our lives. That's what the blood of Jesus does. So a cauterized conscience is one that has been so violated and so damaged that in order to save itself or to save itself from further harm, it, it practically commits suicide in a way. It, to save itself from further damage or harm, if, it, if the conscience did not become cauterized or seared, then the overwhelming guilt of a person who violates their conscience to such a degree or to such, a, to such dangerous levels would be such, it would be so overwhelming that it would kill the person. You know, it, just, it might cause them to go to, you know, like what Judas did. Judas was so overwhelmed with guilt that it caused him to kill himself to physically kill himself. So it's almost like, and I hope I'm not presuming too much here and reading into this too much, but it seems like from reading this that a cauterized or a seared conscience is a defense mechanism of the conscience to deal with the repeated violations of it by breaking God's law and the, pur and the purposeful knowledge, the purposeful breaking of God's moral standard by hypocritical liars who pretend to be one thing, but are really something else on the inside. Now, going on now to verse 3. 1 Timothy 4.3, again I'm reading from the Amplified Bible Classic Edition. It says, These people forbid to marry and teach them to abstain from certain kinds of foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and have an increasingly clear knowledge of the truth. So this is more of the, this is another example of the doctrine of demons. Forbid people to marry. Now this is not talking about what we have perverted marriage into in cultures and countries and societies around our modern world. When we're talking about forbidding people to marry, we're not talking about Everybody should be allowed to get married. Homosexual marriage is a sin. It's, it's, homosexuality is a sin against God. And legalizing and normalizing homosexuality by making those relationships, attempting to make them equal by giving them marriage rights, is also it's a, it's a greater sin down that path. So I'm, when we're talking about forbidding people to marry, we're not saying there's no boundaries within marriage. What we're talking about is people who would otherwise be qualified to be married within biblical boundaries that certain religious doctrines teach are not that, uh, that certain people within those religious groups cannot get married. There's a few examples that come to mind right off the top of my head, but I'm going to refrain from giving those specific examples in this case for now. I just feel like that that's the right thing to do. But I'm sure that some of you, especially that are more familiar with Christendom overall, can track where I'm going with that. 
The same with abstaining from certain kinds of foods. That is another doctrine of demons because God has created them to be received with thanksgiving for those who have an increasingly clear knowledge of the truth. Now, the law of Moses, at, you know, back in the Old Testament, had a list of certain foods that said, you know, you can't eat this. This is an abomination to the Lord if you eat these things. So what changed? Well, to see that, we must go to Acts chapter 10. Now, as I'm looking this up, I want to tell you that the part of the, the overall purpose of what's happening here, the context of what's happening here, God is showing Peter that he should not call the Gentiles unclean, but because by the, by the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has, he took upon himself the sins of the whole world, Jesus did. So not just the Jews, but the whole world. So now the, entire, the door is open for the entire world, all people, to enter God's kingdom if they will come through the door of Jesus. You know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can find that in John 14, chapter 14 and verse 6. But God is saying here to Peter, he's showing him that, hey, don't call the Gentiles unclean any longer. Don't consider them outside the covenant any longer because now we're under a new covenant and the Gentiles are as welcomed in just as much as you are. Up to this point, the church has been entirely Jewish. The disciples have, in obeying Jesus, they have been uh, evangelizing their fellow Jewish brethren. Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, before he ascended to heaven, said, Go to Jerusalem, and then all Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. So they're obeying Jesus. They're starting out evangelizing their fellow Jewish brethren. But there comes a point now where God's saying, Okay, it's time to expand this beyond the Jews to the Gentiles, which are non-Jews, for those that are not familiar with that term term. There's Jews and then there's Gentiles, which are non-Jews. So God is opening the door for the Gentiles. Thank God, since I'm not Jewish, uh, and most people in the world aren't Jewish. That's a majority of the planet. So thank God he opened the door to us and we're not eternally screwed forever. Okay, so in verse 9 of Acts chapter 10, the reason why I bring that up is because of the the example or the comparison that God makes and how this relates to the food laws changing or being superseded by the new covenant. In Acts chapter 10 it says, The next day, as they were still on their way and we were approaching the town, and were approaching the town, Peter went up to the roof of the house to pray about the sixth hour, which is noon. But he became very hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, a trance came over Peter. And Peter saw the sky opened and something like a great sheet lowered by the four corners descending to the earth. It contained all kinds of quadrupeds and wild beasts and creeping things of the earth, 
and birds of the air. In other words, things that were previously forbidden by the law of Moses for Jews to eat and to maintain their righteousness under the law of Moses. Verse 13, And there came a voice to him, saying, Rise up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, No, by no means, Lord. That is a contradiction. The word Lord means master. It's not a recognition primarily of Jesus' divinity. It's a recognition that Jesus is their master. So if you say no Lord, it's like saying no master. You don't tell your master no. If you're in a master-servant or a master-slave relationship, you don't tell your master no because he's the Lord. He's the master. So that's a contradiction in terms. But Peter said no by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common and unhallowed or ceremonially unclean. Verse 15, And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has cleansed and pronounced clean, do not you defile and profane by regarding and calling common and unhallowed or unclean. So God says, These things have been clean, cleansed and pronounced clean. Now, he's making, again, in context, he's making a point that the Gentiles, through the blood of Christ, can be considered cleansed and, un and pronounced clean, just like the Jews can. But the comparison he's using is that these foods have also been made under the new covenant, cleansed, and have been made clean, and therefore worthy of eating. So now I can eat bacon at Cracker Barrel and not be violating the law of God, not be violating the covenants of God, because now we're under a new covenant. We're no longer under the law of Moses. Verse 16, this occurred three times, and there's a bunch of significance there too, because Jesus, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times when he was confronted before Jesus' crucifixion. Um, then after Jesus was killed and resurrected three days later, he spent 40 days on the earth between his resurrection and when he ascended to heaven. And at one of those times, Peter, or Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And that ties back to Peter's denial of Jesus three times that he didn't even know him. So Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? So here we see this again. Peter, Peter has to be shown this vision three times to get it. This occurred three times. He had to go through this to get it. It seems to be a pattern with him. He has to, he has to receive hard things in threes for him to be able to accept it and understand it. It just seems to be a pattern with Peter. Then immediately the sheep was taken up to heaven after the third time. So that is Acts chapter 10 verses 9 through 16 is where you can find that account. So that's an example of the foods that have now been made clean. But one of the doctrines of demons is to teach people to abstain 
from certain kinds of foods, which 1 Timothy 4.3 says, God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and have an increasingly clear knowledge of the truth. So as our knowledge of the truth becomes clearer and we get more knowledge, we will understand if we previously thought that these foods were unclean or not to be eaten, we can now see that they have been made acceptable as long as they are eaten in faith. Now, if you are a Jewish person and you have are saved and you're under the blood of Jesus and you've partaken of the new covenant and you still have a hang-up about eating certain foods that aren't kosher, then I would recommend that you not eat them and violate your conscience. Even if it's okay and even if it's acceptable and even if you have the, the liberty technically under God's new law to do so, I still wouldn't do it because you don't want to get in the practice of violating your conscience. Pray about it, let the Lord work with you, and maybe the Lord will change your heart and make it to where, you you know, over time, you can overcome this and find it more acceptable. But in the meantime, if you have an issue with something, even if you have the liberty to do it as a Christian, if it violates your conscience, you still should not do it. You don't want to get in the habit of violating your conscience because you don't want it to become seared or cauterized like 1 Timothy 4.2 talks about in the previous verse before this one. All right, so now we're going to move on. The next passage we're going to look at that talks about signs of the last days before the rapture is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 1 through 7. And again, you won't be surprised to learn that 2 Timothy comes right after 1 Timothy. Da -da -da. The Apostle Paul writing again, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. I'm still in the Amplified Bible Classic Edition. It says, But understand this, that in the last days will come or set in perilous times of great stress and trouble, hard to deal with and hard to bear. Boy, if that doesn't sound like 2020 and 2021, I don't know what does. In the last days, perilous times. And again, this isn't just in one country. We're talking worldwide stuff here. Is there a country or a place in the world that you can go to right now where times don't feel perilous and where people aren't living under times of great stress and trouble? And I feel like based on some of the stuff that I've learned, because I keep up with current events a lot, if you follow me on social media, you know this. Um, we're in times of great stress and trouble, and they're just beginning. They're going to get a lot tougher. And it says that these times will be hard to deal with and hard to bear. So even though we will escape through the rapture, God's wrath being poured out on the earth on a global scale during the tribulation on an unbelieving world, it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to escape all stress and trouble and hard times. Okay? So don't be surprised when these hard times come. Where's Jesus at? He says one of the signs of the end of the age is that times will be hard to bear, and will, will, there will be times of great stress and trouble. Verse 2, um, it says, For people will be lovers of self, 
and utterly self-centered. So this isn't just the normal part of the sinful nature where people can be self-centered and all that. We're talking about times and people that are characterized by utter self-centeredness, meaning they're given over to self-centeredness. They're not just self-centered once in a while. They don't just have a tendency towards self-centeredness that the sinful nature gives people. We're talking about people that are given over wholly, wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly given over to self-centeredness. Lovers of money and aroused by an inordinate greedy desire for wealth. So again, money is not sinful. Having an abundance of money is not sinful. We're talking about an attitude. We're talking about greed, which is not characterized. You can, you can have $100 in your bank account, or you can have $5 in your account and be a greedy person who's desiring more and who's jealous of other people or think that other people shouldn't have as much as they do. That is a greedy desire for more. That is a greedy attitude. Well, that person shouldn't have as much as they have. Well, what business is that of yours to tell somebody that they have too much? Okay? We're talking about an attitude. A greed is not a number in a bank account. It's not how much you have in your account. It's an attitude. It's the greedy desire for more. It's the greedy desire that says, I don't have enough. Whether I have $5 or whether I have a billion dollars, I can never have enough. I need more and I'm willing to do whatever I can to get it because that is what is first in my life. That is what this is describing here. An inordinate greedy desire for wealth. And then it talks about proud and arrogant and contemptuous boasters. People who boast and are proud and arrogant. Now, one of my favorite communicators, one of my favorite people in general that I've ever heard is Rush Limbaugh. I, I so wish that I could have met him, but I never got the chance to. If, if, uh, if, if there's one person in life that I could meet, I would love for it to be Rush Limbaugh. He's such an amazing person. Uh, he was, well, he still is. I'm sure he's in heaven now, but he's such an amazing person. Um, but a lot of people didn't like Rush, and one of the reasons, there are many reasons that a lot of people didn't like Rush, but he was a very polarizing figure. One of the reasons why people didn't like Rush was because even some people on the right, some, even people who would have agreed with him cons uh, on conservatism and politically, some people didn't like him because of his style, said he was arrogant, he was condescending, he thought he knew it all. And... But he was very sarcastic in him, the way he did that. He did that on purpose. He called it illustrating absurdity by being absurd. One of the one of the examples of this is people used to say, even well, all the way through the history of his program, but even early on, one of his critics would often say that Rush is creating a nation of mind-numbed robots who don't think critically, don't think for themselves. They tune in to Rush's show every day from noon to, three, noon to 3 Eastern, Monday through Friday, and Rush tells them what to think. And then his audience just goes about parroting whatever he says because they're stupid, mind-numbed robots who can't think for themselves. Okay, That's the characterization that the media gave about Rush's listeners and about what Rush Limbaugh was trying to do. So in response to this, in his own comedic, sarcastic, 
sort of way, he would say on Fridays at the end of every show, going into the weekend, he would say, all right, guys, we're nearing the end of the program. And so for this weekend, I want you all to shut your brains off. I want you all to, you don't have to think about anything. You don't have to watch any news or consume any kind of information whatsoever. Just shut yourselves off, amuse yourselves, vegetate, whatever you want to do. Just don't think about or focus on anything. Then come back here on Monday, and I will tell you not only everything that happened during the weekend, I will tell you what to think about it. And people would get all up in arms, see, 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 that, that proves it right there. And all the while, he was just, he was acknowledging their own incorrect beliefs about him and about his audience and about what he was trying to do. He was doing that as a means of, dim, as it was mocking, yes, and it was, it was a joke and it was meant to be sarcastic. But it was also showing, look, this is the exact opposite of what this show is. If anything, my audience is the freest of free thinkers, Rush would probably say. And he did say over the 30 plus years that his show was on the radio. He was of the belief that his audience were the deepest thinkers in America. And I agree. I was one of them. But he would say things like that. You know, and they would say he's braggadocious. He thinks a lot of himself. So he would say things like, with half my brain tied behind my back just to make it fair. You know, and those kinds of things. For those who got it, for those who understood it, it was funny and it was laughable. And it made the show even better because it just shows how much fun Rush was having doing his show. But to people who didn't get it and didn't understand it, who I guess you could say didn't have ears to hear, they took that a different way. But that's an example of, that's not an example of an arrogant boaster. What would be an example of an arrogant boaster are people who say, trust the experts, and people who say, you know, who just take what the media says and just spoon feed, and they don't do any sort of research other than what the, the approved fact checkers say is true and what isn't. And, well, I, you know, I trust this person because they're smarter than me, whatever. That, those people who just who hold themselves up as the arbiters of truth, they, are, they would be considered the arrogant, contemptuous boasters who have contempt for everybody who disagrees with them. And so it says they will be abusive. They will be abusive. They will be blasphemous. They will be scoffing. So these, another characteristic of the last days are people that are, and when it, when it says abusive, this is, refers to blasphemous people, scoffing people, people who blaspheme the God of Israel, people who blaspheme Jesus Christ, people who scoff at the claims of the Bible and say, yeah, okay, when's Jesus supposedly coming back? We've been waiting all this time. They're scoffers. They're mocking. They, they mock the things of God. They mock the truths of the Bible and God's word. And then it says another characteristics of the la characteristic of the last days is that people will be disobedient to parents. Now again, throughout all time, we have people that have been disobedient to parents. Uh, that's why Proverbs says to correct your child with a rod. You know, uh, <laughs> the Bible wholeheartedly endorses corporal punishment, much to the chagrin of uh, DSS 
um, divisions across the country. The Bible endorses corporal punishment. I hope I said corporal the first time and not capital. The Bible endorses corporal. Well, it endorses capital punishment too, but not for children. It endorses corporal punishment. In other words, physical uh, um, discipline. Not to the point of, you know, and there's a line there, you know. There's a line you don't cross, you know. But that line is not where it's often said to be. Uh, but still, uh, but the point is here that we have we have um, dis children that are disobedient to parents. So that's always happened. That's always been a thing where children have been disobedient to parents. But we're talking about an epidemic, if you will, of children being disobedient and disrespectful and uh, to parents and not honoring their parents, dishonoring to them. And, and then it says people will be ungrateful, meaning they're not thankful. They're unholy, meaning they're not set apart for God. They don't care about holy things. They're against holy things. They're against the things of God, and they are profane. Verse 3, they will be without natural human affection. So there is a natural human affection. You know, even among the unbelievers, there's, there's a natural, okay, there are certain things that even the world says, whoa, that's, that's pretty extreme, you know. Um, but characterize one of the characteristics of the last days is that that line gets moved farther and farther down a darker and darker path where things that would have been considered uh callous and inhuman even five six years ago now are considered to be normal and actually if you are against those things that are callous and inhuman you are considered the one in the wrong you are considered the one that is uh, judging and narrow-minded and you know things like that relentless and what does that mean relentless admitting of no truce or appeasement they so that means that people who aren't peacemakers people who you know jesus said blessed are the peacemakers these people who the one of the characteristics of the last days are people who are relentless meaning they they have no truce or no appeasement they they don't seek peace they don't seek reconciliation they seek to they seek anger now i just did a podcast the last episode i did i said jesus was the most divisive person ever and i i meant that jesus said he did not come to unify he wants the church to be unified but he said in Matthew 10, he says, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, and I came to divide a son against his father, a daughter against her mother, a son-in-law against her daughter-in-law, or a mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. And he said a man's enemies will be those of his own family or household. So in one sense, Jesus did come to bring division, but he meant that division to be over him meaning Jesus is the most important thing over any other relationship you have in this life. And he said, if you're not, if I'm not the most important thing in your life, then you can't be my disciple. But even though we're to be divided over Jesus, meaning over whether or not to believe in him, you know, we're to separate from unbelievers when it comes to that issue. Jesus being the most important thing in life and following him, doing what he says, being our Lord. 
but still in ways that don't have anything to do with the righteous moral standards of God or over Jesus, we are to seek peace at, all, at, at any cost that doesn't inhibit our, our righteousness and our stand with Christ. We are to seek peace whenever possible. As much as it depends on us, the book of Romans says, live at peace with everyone. But in the last days, one of the characteristics of the last days of people who will not be peacemaking, who will seek division and to divide people and to cause trouble, slanderers, false accusers, troublemakers. Slander, according to the Bible, you know, false accusers. So this would be people who, you know, making accusations that are false not true accusations but false accusations false accusers people who say things about somebody else that are not accurate that's a false accuser or a slanderer troublemakers people who like to stir up things amongst others for the purpose of division now there are times where you have to say some things about somebody to you know for for various reasons maybe but we're talking about things that are done for the purpose of causing trouble for somebody else um, when it's not necessary, when it's, when it's not called for. Um, intemperate and loose in morals and conduct. Loose in morals and conduct. So people who would be more likely to say, live and let live. You do you. You do you and I'm going to do me. You do you, boo. I heard Pastor Craig say that before. You do you, boo. You do you, boo boo. That 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 is um, that is characteristic of this being loose in morals and conduct, both in your own private conduct and in your willingness to just go along and get along with sin, not not hating sinners, not treating them with contempt, but with being loose with uh the moral standards that define our lives. And it says, um, uncontrolled and fierce, having no self-control, haters of good. So these aren't people who just aren't doing the right thing. They hate the good thing. They come out against it. They fight against the good thing. Verse 4, they will be treacherous or betrayers. They will be rash, meaning they will be, they will do things knee-jerk reactions, you know, shoot first, ask questions later, and inflated with self-conceit. They will be lovers of sensual pleasures and vain amusements more than and rather than lovers of God. So you're given over to things that have nothing to do with God. Now that doesn't mean that secular entertainment is bad all necessarily. It doesn't mean you should never listen to secular music. It doesn't mean you should l never listen to a secular podcast or or, you know, something. I mean, Rush Limbaugh is another example from Rush. Rush's show was not a Christian one. But neither was it unchristian. In other words, it didn't violate, for the most part, the principles of God's word. He might have told a tasteless joke here and there, or a bad joke, or whatever, something like that. I've done that myself numerous times. I probably did that earlier today. But um, but we're talking. It wasn't characterized by that. For the most part, his show represented values that are consistent 
with God's word, even if he didn't always express them in the godliest of ways. So, but what I'm talking about here are when these sensual pleasures and vain amusements, you you love them and you replace them with the love or with inst instead of having a love for God and loving those amusements and those vain things that are useless and have no eternal value, you place those above God and instead of God. Verse five, uh, 6, uh, the, the 5, yeah. For although they hold a form of piety and true religion, this again, same thing, they, they profess to be believers, and on the outside they might appear to be, but it says here that they deny and reject and are strangers to the power of God or the power of the piety and the true religion that they claim to hold. Their con and it says here in the Amplified Classic, their conduct belies the genuineness of their profession. So they say one thing, but they, their conduct says that their profession is not genuine. And then listen to this part, First Timothy, or Second Timothy, chapter uh, three and verse five: Avoid all such people and turn away from them. Now this one might be cause some people to raise their eyebrows and go, "Wait a minute! I thought we were supposed to love everybody, and we are supposed to love everybody. Are we supposed to accept everybody?" Well, um, I'm going to have to give a hard no on that one. And there's, there's a reason for that. And I'm going to go into that. Um, there is a example in one of Tim LaHaye's books where he talks about an example of church discipline. When he was uh, in, he was visiting a tribe in Mexico. And... Um, I think I last posted about this toward the end of 2019. Um, it's, uh, Tim LaHaye wrote a good example of church discipline. And I'm bringing this up because that, that part where it talks about turning away from people who claim to be believers, but their conduct says something different. And this is verified conduct, not rumors. Not, I, I heard of so-and-so doing this. This is verified conduct that can be established by two or three witnesses at least, and we can get into this more um, as we're going to get into this more as I go through this. But Tim LaHaye saw a good example of church discipline when he was visiting um, a church of a particular Indian tribe in southern Mexico. And he says, I saw what it meant for a group of believers to observe church discipline, having only the Bible to instruct them. One man was standing outside, watching, while the services had been, or excuse me, while the services were being conducted. So while the church service is going on, this, there's a man standing outside, outside who's not allowed to be in with everybody else. He's not allowed to be part of the community of believers. He's outside. Um, he was watching, but he wasn't allowed to be part of the group. And he says that we were informed that this was because he had been going with an unsaved woman in the village, which compromised his Christian witness. 
2 uh, uh, Corinthians 6.14 talks about not being unequally yoked or unevenly matched with unbelievers. Um, and it says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? And so this man was, was dating. Uh, he, was, he was a professing Christian. He professed Christ. But he was dating a woman he w- that was not a believer, a, a woman who did not profess Christ, a woman who was not part of the body of Christ. And so because he was doing that openly and was not repentant, he was removed from the fellowship. They didn't stop him from listening to the services, but they removed him from the fellowship. He could not be among the people. And it says, and again, 2 Timothy 3.5 it says Paul counsels and the New Testament counsels don't have anything to do with these people who are living in open sin and yet claiming to be believers. Okay. And it says they would not permit him to sit inside through the services until he repented. We were also informed that others of that church were not permitted to take communion and were not permitted to give their tithes and offerings if they were not in fellowship with the Lord. Now, there would be um, an amazing concept in the 21st century church. I mean, what church today, do you know, can you think of a church off the top of your head that would not accept somebody's uh, offer to give money? But this church would not accept tithes and offerings from people who were not living in fellowship with the Lord. What a stir, he writes, it would create in the modern church if such practices were conducted faithfully. But who can say they should not be? In fact, I would suggest on the authority of the New Testament that this should be the practice of the New Testament church. And to give a New Testament example for this, yes, I have, a, I have scripture to back this up. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm going to read this, this particular chapter in the message. The message is a paraphrase of the Bible, but it's a paraphrase not of a translation. It's a, it's a paraphrase of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. So Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, used the original language, but he paraphrased them. He didn't do a direct translation. He didn't do a word-for-word or even a thought-for-thought. This is a total paraphrase. But the way this is done in 1 Corinthians 5 in the message is very well put. And really gets the point across. That's why I'm going to read this in this particular version. And the message in 1 Corinthians 5 says this. Paul writes, I also received a report of scandalous sex within your church family. A kind that wouldn't be tolerated even outside the church. One of your men is sleeping with his stepmother. And you're so above it all that it doesn't even phase you. So we got a person in the congregation, we got two people, 
we got a man sleeping with his stepmother, his father's wife. And the rest of the congregation, the rest of the group is like, oh, you know, they're so above it all. They're so above it all. They can't bring themselves to, to be so narrow-minded as to criticize because, you know, we should never criticize anyone. And we, we should never judge anyone. Jesus said not to judge, right? And so they can't, they're, they're above making a moral judgment. And he says, you're so above it all that it doesn't even phase you. Shouldn't this break your hearts, he says? Shouldn't it, br shouldn't it, bring, to you, shouldn't it bring you to your knees in tears? Shouldn't this person and his conduct be confronted and dealt with? I'll tell you what I would do, Paul says. Even though I'm not there in person, consider me right there with you because I can fully see what's going on. I'm telling you that this is wrong. You must not simply look the other way and hope it goes away on its own. If you have unholy conduct, if you have somebody professing to be a believer in your midst and and they're, I mean, this guy's sleeping with his stepmother. This is an egregious sin. It's not a rumor. It's not a gossip session of, hey, I heard so-and-so is doing this. This is something that can be verified by multiple people. It's, you know, they can verify that this is happening. And this isn't, this isn't just rumors, okay? You don't convict somebody based on hearsay. We're talking about legitimate... Uh, you know, you, you might you might take steps to. Well, I, I don't want to go there, but you don't convict somebody based on hearsay. But he says you must not simply look the other way and hope it goes away on its own. If you know something is wrong and you know it's happening, and you've got two or three witnesses testifying to the fact, if you've got two or three people that say yes, this is happening, at least two or three then you have a responsibility to confront it. Don't just look the other way and hope it goes away, Paul says. He says, bring it out into the open and deal with it in the authority of Jesus, our master. Assemble the community. And Paul says, I'll be present in spirit with you, and our master Jesus will be present in power. And Paul says, hold this man's conduct up to public scrutiny. Let him defend it if he can. In other words, don't all pile on and don't just shut him down and, don't, and not give him a chance to defend himself. But let, let him defend it if he can. But if he can't, then out with him. It will be totally devastating to him, of course, and embarrassing to you. But better devastation and embarrassment than damnation. You want him on his feet and forgiven before the master on the day of judgment. Your flip and callous. So basically, you know, Paul's saying, get this guy out of your out of your midst. Get him away from you guys. And and another other translations say, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the body that his soul might not perish. In other words, if need be, let Satan have his way with him and let him be physically destroyed to the point of death if it will mean that he, it causes him to repent and turn to the Lord. 
Verse 6, it says, your flip, and your flip and callous arrogance in these things bothers me. You pass it off as a small thing, but it's anything but that. Yeast, too, is a small thing, but it works its way through a whole batch of bread, a bread dough, pretty fast. So, get rid of this yeast. Our true identity is flat and plain, not puffed up with the wrong kind of ingredient. The Messiah, our Passover lamb, has already been sacrificed for the Passover meal. And we are the unraised bread part, part of, the, of the feast. So let's live out our part in the feast, not as raised bread swollen with the yeast of evil, but as flat bread, simple, plain, and unpretentious. So he's making the point here that yeast spreads through quickly and leavens the entire bread. Jesus made this example too. So if you're gonna be if you're gonna maintain godliness within your ranks, you gotta remove the unrepentant, the open shame uh, shamelessness of those among you who are sinning egregiously and acting as if it's all okay. I, excuse me, I'm eating, I'm, I'm, that's so rude, I'm sitting here eating M&M's while I'm talking. I should have paused, I apologize. That is totally my fault and that's not, that doesn't sound good and I shouldn't have done that, I'm sorry. But verse 9, sorry about that, I, I won't do that again. I'll pause it when I grab a handful more. It says, I wrote you, Paul says, I wrote you in my earlier letter that you shouldn't make yourselves at home among the sexually promiscuous. I didn't mean that you should have nothing at all to do with the outsiders of that sort, or with criminals, whether blue or white collar, the message says, or with spiritual phonies for that matter. You'd have to leave the world entirely to, to do that. But I am saying that you shouldn't act as if everything is just fine when a friend who claims to be a Christian is promiscuous or crooked, is flipped with God or rude to friends, gets drunk or becomes greedy and predatory. You can't just go along with this, treating it as acceptable behavior. I'm not responsible for what the outsiders do, but don't we have some responsibility for those within our community of believers? God decides on the outsiders, but we need to decide when our brothers and sisters are out of line and if necessary, clean house. First Corinthians 5 says in the message paraphrase. Now, another one more passage here on church discipline. And again, I'm, I'm going through this because of the 2 Timothy 3 thing about not being not associating with people who claim to be godly but their lives say otherwise They're, the the direct and it's not to say they never sin that people never sin but the the trend of their lives tend trend towards something egregious or something that is a consistent drifting away running away from god this apostasy that the New Testament speaks of.
Um, I'm going to go to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Again, this is Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Uh, it says here, if your brother wrongs you, go and show him his fault. I'm going back to the Amplified Classic. If your brother wrongs you, go and show him his fault between you and him privately. If he listens to you, then you have won back your brother. This is when it's talking about your brother, it means your, your fellow believer. But if he does not listen, take along with you one or two others so that every word may be confirmed and upheld by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is why I kept saying two or three people before. Don't just listen to gossip and say, okay, we got to deal with this sin because you don't even know if it's true. We need, you need confirmation. You need hard evidence or something that this is happening that can be verified by two or three people before you go into this whole thing about church discipline. If you if you've got this, then you go to and you bring two or three others. If if you can't win your brother back by going one on one and speaking with him, bring two or three more so that every word may be confirmed and upheld by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he pays no attention to them, refusing to listen and obey, Tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a pagan and a tax collector. In other words, how were pagans and tax collectors treated in that time? They were treated as if they were lower than dirt, basically. They, people didn't even look their way or acknowledge them, let alone eat with them and associate with them and things like that. So that is, um, what is all that stuff on my notes? That's weird and not good. Anyway, sorry about that. Um, so that is an example of the church discipline and the not associating with certain people who claim to be believers but are not, uh, or that, or uh, well, I shouldn't say are not. At the very least, their conduct would make it seem like there's questions about where their allegiance truly lies. Um, and how to deal with that. And again, Second Timothy 3, 5, it says, Avoid all such people and turn away from them. Verse 6, for Second uh, Timothy 3, 6, For among them are those who worm their way into, into homes and captivate silly and weak-natured and spiritually dwarfed women, loaded down with the burden of their sins and easily swayed and led away by various evil, evil desires and seductive impulses. These weak women will listen to anybody who will teach them. They are forever inquiring and getting information, but are never able to arrive at a recognition and knowledge of the truth. That's a pretty serious indictment of the, of the last day's generation. Now we're going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. So we're going to go just one chapter over. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. And it says, For the time is coming when people will not tolerate or endure sound and wholesome instruction. 
So a time is coming when people will not prefer, they will not endure, they will not sit through, they will not tolerate biblical teaching. They will not tolerate stuff that's based on the Bible. Give me something I want to hear, preacher. Give me something that's going to make me feel good and is going to... Um, Give me something that's going to make me comfortable, that's going to tell me how good I am or how good everything is or whatever. Don't be too negative. Don't be too judgmental. <coughs> Don't be whatever. Give me what I want to hear. They will not tolerate sound and wholesome instruction. But having ears itching for something pleasing and gratifying they, excuse me, one second. There we go. I ate some more M&Ms and now I feel better. Um, people will not endure sound doctrine. They will not endure sound and wholesome instruction. But having itching ears for something pleasing and gratifying. They will gather to themselves one teacher after another to a considerable number chosen to satisfy their own liking and to foster the errors they hold and will turn aside from hearing the truth and wander off into myths and man-made fictions. Again, characteristics of the last days in the apostasy of the church before the return of Jesus to take us to be with him in the Father's house. Okay, so the next place we're going to go, there's two more passages here, and we're going to go to, hang on, there might be more than two. Uh, no, there's two, I'm just reading it wrong. Um, Second Peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 2nd Peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 it says but also in those days there arose false prophets among the people just as there will be false teachers among yourselves. Let's start this over. So I'm, I make sure, as I was reading, but I wasn't comprehending. I don't want to, let me start that over. But also in those days, in the last days, there arose false prophets among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among yourselves who will subtly and stealthily introduce heretical doctrines or destructive heresies, even denying and disowning the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So these heretical doctrines and destructive heresies will be so bad that it will get to the point to where they will even deny Jesus. And it will bring upon them swift destruction. And many, not some, not a few, it says many and many 
will follow their immoral ways and lascivious doings. Now there's a fancy smancy word for you. Lascivious doings. Define lascivious. Lascivious is feeling or revealing an overt and often offensive sexual desire. Lascivious behavior is sexual behavior or conduct that is considered crude and offensive or contrary to local, moral, or other standards of appropriate behavior. In this sense, lascivious is similar in meaning to lewd, indecent, lecherous, unchaste, licentious, or libidinous. So, and many will follow the immoral ways and lascivious doings. Because of them, the true way will be maligned and defamed. So, because of these people who follow after, because of these many people who follow after the false teachers who do these immoral things and live lasciviously, the true way, meaning Jesus, remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, John fourteen six. The true way will be maligned and defamed because of these people. And then verse 3, it says, And in their covetousness, in their lust, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false and cunning arguments. Wow. Uh, there's really something about this. Uh, some parts of this are really hitting me here as I read. Um, but let me continue because I don't want to. I don't want to say something without fully thinking it through. But this is impacting me here, um, and I've read it before, but this is impacting me. Uh, verse 2 Peter 3 3 and in their covetousness in their lust and in their greed they will exploit you with false and cunning arguments from from of old the sentence of condemnation for them has not been idle their destruction their eternal misery has not been asleep wow harsh and this is New Testament, folks, so don't be saying, well, I only read the New Testament because the God of the Old Testament is too harsh. Are you reading this? Have you skipped over this part? <laughs> Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. To begin with, you must know and understand this that scoffers and mockers will come in the last days, there's that phrase again, with scoffing. People who walk after their own fleshly desires. That seems to be a common theme through all these, you notice that. And they say, where is the promise of his coming? So there's one thing they say. There's one thing they attack. They attack the doctrine of the second coming. They, attack, they aren't about the things of eschatology. Well, that stuff's just too hard to understand. Well, that's just too controversial. 
Well, I'm sorry, but prophecy is 28% of the Bible. So if you're going to ignore that, you're ignoring about a third, almost almost a third of what God wrote. But where's the promise of his coming? People who mock the doctrine of the second coming, who, who ignore it, to put it off, whatever. Where's the promise of his coming? For since the forefathers fell asleep... All things have continued exactly as they did from the beginning of creation. So where is, the, where is this supposed second coming of Jesus? As far as I can tell, the world's just turning on, going on like it has from the beginning. Nothing has changed since the creation up until now. There's a scientific falsehood called uniformitarianism that fits into this too. I won't get into that right now, but... There's this false belief about uniformitarianism that pervades a lot of the scientific pursuits that really gets a lot of scientists off track when trying to understand the true origins of the universe and the history of our planet in particular. But we won't get into that right now. Second Peter 3, 4, the next verse, it says, where, uh, excuse me, same verse, where, where is the promise of his coming? I already read that. Okay. So this, these are characteristics of people and characteristics of things that will be heard and will propagate during the last days of the church age before the rapture, before Jesus returns to get his people. And that is the end of this. So, again, I started this off by playing that clip from Jesse. And we can hear from that that... Uh, there's nothing in here, in any of these passages, about Jesus is going to come to get his church for the rapture when they've given enough money. Like we're essentially buying Jesus' return. Nothing in the Bible says that. In fact, there's, there's several things mentioned about money here that um, would call that those statements into question in a very disturbing way even more than I was indicating when I started this episode. And um, I'll leave that where it is because again, I want to... I don't want to say more before I've had a chance to really think this through. Um, and study it out more. But, again, my point was not to tear down Jesse to plan this, because I think, I, I, I love Jesse. <laughs> I, I think he's great. I think he's, he's a funny guy. He says a lot of things that are true. He says a lot of things that are very impactful in a good way spiritually for the kingdom of God but this particular statement this clip that I played at the beginning was very disturbing and the more I read the scriptures that I that I came with for this podcast episode the more disturbed I became but um, anyway my point is here is that this statement this thing has 
started making the rounds, maybe not so much in the quote-unquote mainstream news media, but it has started making the rounds in a lot of the Christian news media. CBN, Christianity Today, I don't know if CBN did it, but Christianity Today did something, a couple of others have, and... Um, so I felt like this was this was a good topic to cover in light of this making at least at the very least some Christian news circles. Let's put it that way. But uh, thank you all for joining me. This has been the Wisdom on Wheels podcast. Again, you can reach out to me anytime with any thoughts, questions, comments, objections, topic ideas. Or if you want to appear on the podcast and we can do a mutual recording or maybe I can give you a messenger call or I can call you, uh, we can do a Zoom thing or something or a messenger or whatever and I can record it and we can do it for a podcast episode or, or whatever. Uh, if, you, if you're interested in doing that or any, anything at all related to the podcast, let me know and we'll discuss it and maybe it'll make it on a future episode. So. Uh, you can do that. You can reach out at wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. Again, that is wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. So, uh, thank you very much for listening, and I super duper look forward to being with you all again soon. God bless, and have a great night.